Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. This week, our guest is former Army Warrant Officer Chris Landis. Chris, thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, no problem. All right, so you're old. Yes. You joined like way before 9-11. Uh, about 10 years or so. About 10 years. That's, I was... I was like nine when you joined, I guess. Yeah. So you're like, you're you're really you were you were really the old dude, like when new kids would get to the unit. Oh yeah, you were the you were the old crusty chief. Yep, and I could still outroad Martin though. I'm sure you could. <laughs> uh, you're a hoss. I am now corn fed. I think is the appropriate term. <laughs> <laughs> Your mother was in the military, correct? Yeah, she was in the navy. What did she do in the navy? She was a registered nurse, um, civilian, but she was Navy Reserve. As a nurse, and she worked in the Fleet Hospital 20, I believe. But when they deployed to Saudi Arabia, they became Fleet Hospital 15. And were the forward most deployed Fleet Hospital supporting the Marines at the time. And that was during the Gulf War yes. time period? And that was one of the motivations for you to join the Army. You can talk about that a little bit. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so she was off to Saudi Arabia. That was my junior year in, in high school. And I started, I took ASVAB and... Thought, man, I got to join the military. And I was like, whoever calls me first, that's wherever I'm going. So the Army called me first. Said, hey, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know, be infantry or something. I just want to go to war. And there was also a second motivation behind that. I found out that if you joined the National Guard or Reserves, went to basic training between your junior and senior year and actually got called to combat, you didn't have to finish high school. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. That's what I needed to do because I wasn't sure I was going to finish anyway. <laughs> so and you figured the goal forward last a little longer than it did. Yeah, 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 like maybe 104 hours instead of 100. But yeah, yeah. So it was over. Was your real mom quick. gone at the time? Yeah, she was deployed. What did she think when she came back? And you're like, hey, I'm in the army now. So that was 91. So she was married to my stepfather. Well, he had power of attorney, so he signed for me to, for the to join, right? But I think they were. They were. She was back before I graduated because she went. She came to my graduation basic training. Where did you go to basic? Uh, Fort Jackson. What was the initial MOS you signed up for? Well, originally it was supposed to be Eleven Charlie Mortarman, yep. and then I ended up switching to Thirteen Romeo, which is a firefighter radar operator. They really, still have those? Yeah. What does um, What does that entail? Because I've never. Yeah. Well, it was really cool. But the, the uh, recruiter explained to me I would you know be finding forest fires with radars. Oh, yeah, that's cool. But what it really is is you look for enemy artillery and mortars. Um, when they fire, you use your radar to track them. And then it does a reverse plot of the, the, the angle of flight and everything. It does a lot of math really fast, and it tells you where it was shot from. And then you can transmit your, that data to your friendly guns, and then they can return fire and destroy the enemy. So you worked really closely with the normal artillery and also, like, the fisters, I imagine, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. It was yeah. like you're in a team... So right. Would you be in like HHC company, like headquarters company, like? Yeah. So HHC, as you know, but HHB, so it's headquarters, headquarters battery. But you go out and you support all the batteries in the in the battalion. You joined the reserves. National Guard. National yeah. Guard. Yeah, and that, you went Guard. between your senior and junior year. Yep. I was seventeen when I joined. What was that like going to basic training, like so young? Was so long ago, as you pointed out. It was ninety one that you went. Yeah, ninety one. I was six. Sorry. June ninety one. I don't know. I. I was really active as a youth. I had gone to a summer camp one time with the state police, and that was kind of like boot camp for, for, sure. two, for two weeks. 
And I played football and I wrestled. So I was always getting yelled at for not running fast enough. So it really wasn't wasn't much different. Right. You know, it just lasted a lot longer and you had to make your bed. You know, was, so after basic, you had to go back to high school for I a did. year before you went to your like trade school, like AIT. AIT, yeah. Right, were you just like itching to just be done, get out of there? Oh, yeah. I, I, did. I wasn't very good at school. You didn't I, care? Yeah. So actually, and then my senior year, I actually got the later year. I was supposed to go to uh, AIT in 92. I didn't go until 93 because I shattered my elbow in, mm. in school. And then I had to rehabilitate it and then prove to the Army that it wasn't a hindrance. And then they sent me to AIT down in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. But you were in the guard this whole time. Yes. Like, so you'd still have to show up for drill weekends and yep. stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I still do that. And I still, uh, in actually 92, the state of Pennsylvania had a state of, a state of emergency because of the snow. So I got activated for that. And we went out and shut down roads while they brought in these huge snowblowers and cleaned the roads. And so what did they have you doing at your unit between? Because technically, you don't have an MOS yet. Right. I just kind of. Your privates are just details? Oh, yeah. And then when we would actually go to the field with the with the section, we would go out and I would just help set up tent poles and set up, you know, camouflage or dig holes or pull cables. I didn't actually operate the radars at the time, but I was learning some stuff. Sure. That made it a little easier when you got to AIT. Yeah. You had a little bit of background info. Yeah. And it, and it was, it was good. Um, I didn't know as much as I wish I did, but. When did you transfer to active? 95. What motivated you to do that? I wasn't good at working in civilian jobs. Yeah. <laughs> I was every other week I had a new one. And, and they were in my in my town was running out of jobs to to get so. self-aware of all the things you were not very good at like school work yeah the army is a perfect fit right yeah it was <laughs> and, and it's funny you know i wasn't good at school but i went to ait and i was a distinguished honor graduate sure well it's different because it's something you cared about right yeah, like right, yeah. i was terrible at school like i, I graduated like a 2.1 gpa yep. i just graduated from penn state with 3.8 you know what yeah, i mean like I just, you know, in high school, when you're trying to figure out what you want, it just doesn't matter, especially if you're already, you know, you're going to the military. It just doesn't matter. So you go active duty, and then where were you assigned? So I joined active duty. It was at Needs of the Army. I went to Fort Stewart, Georgia, and I was there a year. And then that was 24th Infantry Division. 96, they transferred over to 3rd ID, which they are now. So I had already had orders to go to Germany. Uh, I wasn't even there a year. So I left like right at the one year mark, which is the minimum or whatever, however they figure out DROS states and whatever. Went to Germany, got there, and then went right to Bosnia to meet up with my unit. And you were enlisted at this time still, right? So, yeah, so I was an E4 then. Let's talk about Bosnia. What was that like? Um, I, I came in near the end of it, but the training to, to go there was ridiculous. We would always go in, up to like Holmesfels and Graf and a lot of civil disturbance training, a lot of mine training, landmines, millions and millions of landmines in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, the area that nobody knows about. Sure. They, they weren't, they didn't keep maps and records. And, and then, you know, when the Russians and whoever put them in and then hand them over and say, oh, here's where they are. They were everywhere. I learned quickly not to walk on grass, but that was a big thing anyway. But right. You never walked on the grass. Our major getting that ass. Right. Plus, there's IEDs there, or uh, right. not IEDs, landmines everywhere. You didn't really have a job there because there's no... We had radar set up. They would, every now and then, somebody would come in and pop a mortar off or two. But we mainly protected the airfields. We had some radars up on some real high mountains. Uh, Mount Viss was one of them. It was just pretty neat because going up that thing, you were leaning back in your seat. And coming down, you were standing on the, the engine, the firewall, to 
that was an interesting place. And I did, uh, we did a lot of convoy uh, protection. A lot of people don't understand or don't realize, like, Bosnia was a pretty big operation. Well, there it were, was. It was Like, huge. 10th Mountain was there. Like, 82nd was there. Like, there was... Yeah. There were... Almost, almost all of Germany. There was, like, tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers, like, boots on ground. And lots of uh, U.N. partners. You know, yeah. Russia was there. The Danish were there. French. It was a lot. Like, it gets little notice, but, like, I mean, and it was... It's not Afghanistan or Iraq, but, I mean, there was, like... People were killed. Oh, yeah. It wasn't necessarily a safe zone at the time. No, and, and you had paths, and by the time I got there, there was paths, and you could walk the paths, and they were pretty pretty good. But then you get like a poor uh, downpour. All of a sudden, the path closed. And you're like, What's, why is the path closed? Well, they, it unearthed a landmine that was right next to the path. There was one that was like this little cut through the woods, and they had this little bitty PX set up. And if you went from Tent City over there, you took that little path. Well, there was an anti-tank mine five inches from that path that nobody had no way had discovered until it rained one they day. really didn't check it they just half-assed checked it yeah because who knows who built it right you know i mean we were just like oh look a path that should be good you know that's just how soldiers were that was 95 96 96 i went 96 when did you decide to become a warrant officer oh geez so that was 2002 so i was i was teaching at the schoolhouse at fort sill as a enlisted, and I was. Um, and that's the home of all the all, all the artillery, artillery stuff, right? Yeah. So I was teaching. Nine Eleven happened. I remember I was out on uh, Apache Ridge. I was waiting for students to show up. I got a phone call. I said, "Hey, you know this is happening." So all right, well, let me know if anything else happens. And then Florida, and then Pennsylvania, Shanksville, and I was like, "Holy crap, we're we're going to war!" And I called drill sergeant. I'm like, "Where are these students at?" Oh, did you hear what happened? I said, yeah, you got to get them out here, man. <laughs> Training just completely changed. So then that was 01, early 2002, um, some warrant officers, which their schoolhouse was in our schoolhouse, artillery warrant officers. They were like, hey, you should put it in a packet, talk to them. They helped me write my packet. They helped me write my letter. What rank were you at uh, the time? I was a E6. And I was going to be looked at E7. I thought, well, if I wanted to be stay on a radar, because at the time, we were radar technicians, and we repaired radars. We went out with the radars. And as an E-7, you went to a target processing cell, and you were in the headquarters. So I really liked the radars. I understood them. So I put my warrant packet in. I got picked up first look. End of 2002, October 2002, I went to Warrant Officer Candidate School at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Came out of there, went back to Fort Sill. Graduated January of 03. And I got orders to go to 101st. I got the 101st, joined the Rock Sons there, and they were like, all right, straight to Iraq. So I flew into Iraq, little no training for anything except what I learned at schoolhouse. And I landed in Mosul after who knows how many flights, and I couldn't tell you where the heck we were or what we did because everything was just a blur. I landed in Mosul and I had a flak jacket, <laughs> and they're like, all right, get in the back of home B. And we're flying down through Mosul up towards Halifar, and everybody else has IBAs on. You know, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what the heck? Man, this isn't cool. And it's cold because it was uh, October. But we got up there. I met my radar crew. Got on a radar there in the airfield at Talifar. I got to go out and do some fuel meetings because we were responsible for making sure fuel trucks were making it to the places to distribute fuel and that they weren't gouging prices or they weren't getting robbed and any black market stuff or anything was going on. So I got to do that a couple times. That was pretty neat. And then we moved down into Mosul, up on the other side of the airfield, to uh, be relieved in January of '04, and around February or so, 
we had a unit come in and actually relieve us. And that was a new experience too, because we had guys coming in that were radar operators that were PCS'd out of the Army. On their way home, we're still in terminal leaving. The Army called them back and said, hey, you're deploying. That's brutal. These guys really did not want to be there. Oh, I can imagine. And there's plenty of work to do because, like, oh, I mean, there was no artillery per se, but there's plenty of mortars and rockets that were coming in and were having to be tracked, Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah, they would. I mean, every day we were getting getting some type of incoming, especially down in, in uh, Mosul. We nicknamed it Camp Impacta <laughs> because they, they would. They were just, every day they were shooting some type of rocket or mortars or something. And... Tracking them, you were really just getting a general location because they would lay them on a dirt hill, you know, pointed in the general direction of, of your camp or your, your base and have fuses, some type of fuse. And a lot of times they were on timers. Right, because they were long gone. Or they, like, had them mounted in a truck bed and they'd drive by. Yeah. So you really couldn't get, you really couldn't get uh, like, effective counterfire on them. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there was, there, yeah, there, there. Was, well, that and they would do it in the cities. So they knew that we weren't going to lob artillery Shell and mortars the shit back out of out Mosul, yeah. yeah just because they shot from there one of the real uh effective times was really neat to see is we were taking incoming i was up at the headquarters or something and i come running out heading towards the radar because we hadn't we hadn't heard anything from the radar we didn't get any report nothing like dead radio silence and i thought holy crap so we're all in butt and uh you can see us kiowa going flying down the road the main msr between the the airfield and us, and a little white bungo truck you know, hauling butt, you know, or a little pickup truck hauling butt trying to get away from him, and he ends up engaging him out on that main road. And that Kiowa just happened to be in that area, saw the, fire, the rockets fire, went there and saw the guys jumping in the truck and leaving. So he had eyes on was able to engage him. That's fun, pure fun. Is it, what was, that is. it was. I mean, you're up on the top of the hill looking down, watching this go on. You're just, you know, I felt like a... I don't know, it kind of felt like the Spartans, you know, when they're kicking the guys off the cliff and yeah. you know, standing there, you're just celebrating this. You shouldn't have to worry about those three or four guys anymore. Right. Is that a year? A year-long tour? No, I was only there five months. Yeah, end of five months. It was their year. Well, some guys were there 14 months. But Jesus. Yeah. So back to 101st? Back to 101st, yeah. Back to Fort Campbell. And then back to Iraq again? Yep. So I got home in February of Oh six, we deployed again. Oh six, oh seven, and that time we were in um, to crit. Same situation. Yeah. By, that, by then, I had moved out of the battalion, artillery battalion. I was at brigade headquarters. You were targeting officer. I was at this the targeting point? officer. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what a targeting officer does? At that time, we looked for trends and did a lot of trend and analysis type stuff. Like down in Samar, we had one guy that was that would fire mortars all the time at one of the small cops down there. And we knew where they were firing from. So we started collecting every time they fired, the time, you know. I mean, everything we were doing, weather, it, anything we could come up with, what made them want to shoot at that time or when the next time they were going to shoot. Um, then we would try and put eyes overhead of some sort so they could either kill them or actually capture them. Were you working with the S2, like the intelligence office? Yeah, so the S2 provided a lot of data. We were just really getting into a lot, using a lot of computers in. So you had some real cool, uh, like Excel, could actually put out some really cool products in Microsoft Excel. And we used that a lot because you could put the data in and then use it to turn a graph. So you had a visual representation. This was a year-long tour there this time, close to it? 15 months. 15 months. Oh, it's one of those. The green weenie got you. Yeah. Yeah, that's when they extended everybody's tour. 15 I was in Afghanistan at the time, and the same thing yeah. for us. 
So you're there 15 months and your best estimate, how many of these like target packets did you provide? You could put effective rounds on and get some verified kills. Mm. Most of them were, weren't actual like target packets where we verified or that we had collected enough data to kill. I think we had one, uh, in Austinia, which was right outside, um, Fob Summerall, where we knew they were firing from. I think that's the one I convinced the commander to let me just collect data for two days and not send anybody after him or not shoot it or do anything, just so I could have pure data. Right, and it wasn't affected by anything. Yeah, and they they were killed by our mortars. The, the day the Gold Mosque blew up, I think it was February of '07. The Gold Mosque was a Samara, huge historic mosque. And it blew up. The dome just blew off. And we had sent some um, one of our UAVs down to monitor the situation, see what's going on. We didn't want to directly go in. It was uh, all right. right. Right away, they were blaming us for it. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, well, we dropped a bomb on it. And it was clearly blown from the inside out. Right. I mean, it's all this, the whole dome and everything was just gone. That day... Brassfield Mora received some incoming. And it's just north of Samara, right on route Tampa. And we had a UAV up. The grid came in, and before we could even see if we could range it or whatever, I yelled to UAV guys. So that's two guys in the talk running the UAVs. Hey, look, look at this grid. And they swung the camera around, and there's guys packing stuff up and getting in a vehicle. All right, so we'll follow them. So we're following them at the time. Our brigade commander, Colonel Steele, had gone down to Samara to try and help assess the situation, see what's going on. Uh, he was on the road or in a helicopter or something. So we get the JAG together. We get the ALO, which is the Air Force guy, uh, the S-2, me, and the S-3, who runs the entire operations. All of us get together, put our heads together. We get him on the radio, tell him the situation. You know, legally, we were cleared to, to drop a bomb on them. We had done every assessment, figured it all out. We followed them for a long time. They got into back to a structure, into a, a house. Air Force had got on the horn, got a, a fast mover overhead, and we dropped a large bomb. Clarify for people, what is a fast mover? Oh, an air, aircraft, F-16, F-15, something to that effect. One of the ones that... One of the fighter jets carrying bombs. Yeah. It was like 500-pounder they drop on, like JDAM? Yeah, I don't know if it was a 500 or 2,000 pounder. It looked like a 2,000 oh, pounder when it went off, but I think it was a 500 pounder. You clearly had the, the X marks the spot. So you have, when you're looking at UAV feed, you have, which everybody's used to thermals, you have your white hot and your black hot. And I think at the time we had white hot, and it blew the four walls out, and everything was hot. It had like an X right on the ground. Well, the great thing when you got UAV eyes on is you could give the pilot like a 10 digit grid like you can get with yeah, a meter could, yeah you could get really really close um it wasn't an official data source but you could use it and the air force guy who knew all the the language the, the, the jfos and jtax and they, those guys. They, they all have the language to talk the pilot onto the target they just lead them right on over the radio right man yeah those guys are really especially the jtax which are the the air controllers the listed air controllers who can talk to a pilot to drop drop a bomb or engage engage something, a vehicle or what have you, and they can take what they see from the ground and turn it in their head 
to what the pilot's looking at right. and be able to tell him how to look at how to find the target you know this look at this building okay you see this building okay you know 300 meters west you see this building yeah and talk him right onto the target yeah those dudes are smart like really well-trained guys and oh, like, absolutely air force catches a lot of shit from the army but like even in an infantry line unit like jtacs man they're just one of the dudes like you everybody accepts them like they're their own right and now you have jfos which are the joint forward observers which you're used to the fisters that always went along with the with the infantry to be able to call in artillery and now they're joint so now they're trained to do the air force part so they can call in airstrikes effectively cool stuff it, man yeah took a while but they actually got them now to where you always had to have an alo some or a, a jtac somewhere on the line he could listen and follow along and he was the only one that could give clearance to actually drop the bomb which is okay but just added a, a middleman and i think I think they've gotten rid of that now to where the JFO on the ground can actually release bombs. Well, they've got cool toys now, too. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw it. They've got, it's like the big green box and it's hooked up like these bino-looking things that are green. And, like, they just look at a target and it lasers it for the birds. Oh, the yeah. bird just comes in. Like, they don't have to say anything. They just got to look yeah. at the enemy, lock onto it. Yeah, the glid. Yeah, dude, super cool, like, uh, sci-fi movie type shit going on now. Yeah, well, it's actually, yeah, you can look at it. You can lace the target. And it trans the laser actually has an identifier in it, and it transmits that identifier, and the air- aircraft picks up that identifier from the reflection and knows the target to hit. Hope you're listening, to North Korea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got cool shit that can hit you from real far away. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't even need to put boots on the ground anymore. No, no, you really don't, man. Like we got the capabilities to airstrike people back into the stone. No, ages. yeah, the Navy has all their you know their, uh, the big guns yeah well yeah you got the huge guns on the boats they got the uh tomahawk cruise missiles uh, we have bombers that can fly from anywhere and drop massive amounts of ordnance and destroy stuff so i'm glad i'm glad we got you here so i want to talk about this so north korea has been in the news a lot lately right and some like we heard a lot of different options that the u.s has to deal with them but one of the the common themes in why it's dangerous for us to preemptively strike them is because of all of their artillery they have pointed like directly at Seoul. So as an artillery guy, let's say we were preemptively strike North Korea and then they were to just launch barrages of 155 on Seoul. Like what kind of damage does that do to a city? Well, doubt that their large artillery could even reach Seoul, but it would be effective in the, in the, the shorter range. And I never did go to Korea. I, went to, I kind of wanted to just to work on some of the strategic stuff. But back in the day, we always did this thing called CFL, or uh, UFL, sorry, it was ultra-focused lens, which was the Korea scenario. Yeah. So it, it's it's already been well, well war-gamed, and, but if we hit first, they're not going to have a chance to shoot that artillery. You think so? They're going to be high-priority targets. Hypothetically, though, like what kind of damage does 155 rounds do to a city? Like if ever to hit Pittsburgh or somewhere just shell the shit out of it with tons of Willie P and... Well, yeah, I mean, if you have white phosphorus, obviously it burns, and it burns at a high temperature. Um, The only way to stop it is to actually cut off all oxygen to it. Right, or just let it run its course. Yeah, or let it run its course, uh, because it will burn out. And actual structures, I only ever hit a few structures with uh, 155s, and now we have guided 155s. Excalibur rounds? Yes, Excalibur. Yeah, GPS. GPS guided, GPS and inertia guided artillery. So, yeah, they fire them in general direction of the target and try and get it right on. Right. But it guides itself It can get in. itself there the rest of the way. Yeah. So, I'm trying to think. 155 is 60 pounds of HE, I believe. 
it's a large amount of high explosive. We know what a pound of C4 does typically. I mean, right. everybody's seen it on Mythbusters and whatever, so multiply that by 50. You know, it's, I mean, you take buildings down. Oh, yeah. And then we, and then we have delayed fuses, too, so we can punch through you know, a wall and you know, well, be coming in more of a higher angle. But you, you punch come through straight like three or four through. floors of a building and then detonate at the bottom of it, right. theoretically. Yes. And then we have our guided MLRS, too, which is a 270-millimeter rocket, which has... 90 pounds of explosives in the word. It's just nasty. But long-range, guided, yeah. pinpoint. You reach out and touch somebody with I it. I could remove you know, this room from this building and hardly touch the rest of the building. So Cool tour. They're effective. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll switch gears again. So you come back from Iraq that second time, and then you decided so you went 10th Mountain Division. Uh, not yet. Not yet. No, I went back to Iraq again. So, yeah, so back to Baghdad this time. And we had... Uh, and that's a world different. Yes. I mainly was on BIOP. Uh, which is the huge conglomeration of megafobs. Was that in the quote-unquote green zone at the time? No. The green zone was downtown, you know, actual. We were like Where the embassies and stuff yeah, were? right. So we were on the west side of Baghdad and the south part. It was on Spiker was the name of the, the uh, fob, which was the second Spiker I was on because I was on Spiker and the second time I deployed and Spiker the third time, but spelled differently. But we had... Mahmoudia, the Sydney Triangle of Death, that was RAO that we came into. Um, and we actually relieved 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain Division. When we got there, 2nd Brigade, 10th Mountain had had two guys that were missing or captured, uh, which we called MISCAP, or um, Dust One, duty status unknown. They were still missing at the time, and 2nd Brigade had worn themselves out. They were all very skinny and tired and beat to hell because they've spent everything they had to try and find these guys. So we came in with fresh eyes, fresh people. And how did those dudes go missing? Were they snatched out of a vehicle? Yeah, they were. so there was an overwatch on uh, Route Malibu down in the southern part of the AO. They were overwatching the route because there was a lot of large, deep-buried IEDs put down there. And everybody in the vehicle had fallen asleep. Al-Qaeda was in the area, had a plan, waited for them to fall asleep, and then executed the plan where they snuck up, dropped a couple grenades in the gunner's hatch and took whoever they could they grabbed three guys one of them died in custody or we think in their care or custody as they were crossing the river or near the river crossing they dumped him in the river um, and took the other two i got to work on that committee to try and find them how long have they been missing when you'd gotten there i don't know if, probably six months it had been a while it wasn't fresh it wasn't 30 sure. days or and they had already found some of their effects up in Samara. We found out that that was a ploy to get us to look the wrong way. They took their ID cards and dog tags and stuff and had them in Samara, and another unit found them there. We had a really good uh, intel guy working, uh, all-source intel. He took and asked permission to start over, so we gave him permission, and he sat back and completely reinvented the entire attack and everything to try and confirm what everybody knew. He just wanted to look at it with fresh eyes and see if that's where, if the intel already led us, led us to the same place. And then the Brits were out on an operation, SAS or SBS, one of the two, captured a guy. And he said, hey, I know where the soldiers are. So they flew him down to meet with somebody, and that guy didn't know. And, but he said, but that guy does point to the guy next to him or whatever. And so the story goes, and then he said, yep. And he took him to the burial site. And there was two burial sites. The first one, he had to move him because we got too close. 
or the second brigade, I'm not sure who, but one of us got too close to him, and he had to actually dig him up and move him. But he was just the end guy. And we then there was players that we knew uh, had taken place in it that we were trying to kill or capture. We captured some big ones who had been institutionalized. They knew the run, what they were going to go through with us. Uh, we brought the Iraqi courts into, into play at the time. One of them was actually handed over to the Iraqis. And you don't want that. Well, we thought it was going to be a good thing because they were like, oh, yeah, he'll do hard time. We'll put him in this little cage and he'll suffer. And a few months later, we got a picture of him. It looked like he was at Club Mid. One specific target that was a thorn in my side that we tried to get. We had pictures of him going to the Hajj on a private jet, all dressed up and clean. Didn't look like he had a care in the world. We were hunting him pretty heavy. And we did not get him by the time we had left. And I would get on the secret servers and search them and he did get killed about a year later not by us a little closure for you yeah it was yeah it's when you're in that that world where you have specific targets which is the targeting officer morphed from looking for enemy mortars and enemy artillery to looking for enemy enemy personnel uh, we started hunting high value targets and high value individuals we still did the high value target stuff like korea you know, where their power plants are, where their headquarters are, where their artillery is, where their long-range rockets, stuff like that. We'd still do that, We, but we come up with target packets for those and say, okay, here's the packet for that. So if we strike, this series of target packets are going to be the first ones to, to be removed. Critical nodes is what we call them. So you get your communications and stuff like that. But then we started hunting high-value targets, individuals. And that's a little more of an intelligence role. Yes, because you have to take... Uh, every type of intelligence there is out there, you know, your human intelligence, your signal intelligence, any type of uh, geog- or, um, what they call geo your geographical intelligence, anything that you can get, any type of intelligence, and put it together. And in the end, you're trying to figure out when and where this guy is going to be on the face of the earth so that you can put people or bombs there. But it's tough, too, starting out, because like a lot of times you'll start with a name. And for instance, like Hab- Habib John will be the name and there's literally 280 Abib Johns in Iraq that you know of and it's just like all right man figure out which one it is you just got to kind of yeah and that's where start they, from the bottom and that's where the intel people come in you know they don't get enough credit for what they do because they really really provide you with some of the greatest data you could ever I mean it's you know I wish people could see you know like you know you have a American sniper you know oh yeah maybe about one guy is a sniper Love to see a freaking hero war movie of the intel guy actually providing the, that, the data. Right, that, putting them on the target. That puts people on target, you know. That, those snipers didn't know where to go without intel guys. Right, right. Like, they don't just, it's not like in the movies where they just get in a Humvee, ride out, and like, ah, oh, this looks like a good building to shoot from. Yeah, right. Like they're, yeah. they're given coordinates, go here, yeah. set up here, look this direction. Yeah, a lot of them, oh yeah, or a lot of them get, you know, hey, you need to go in this area, and this is what you're overlooking. And they, you know, they'll pick their spots. They're the ones that are experts at that. But, um, but it's not as cavalier as it's made to be in the right. movie sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you know, we talk about the forward observers. And uh, if anybody knows Jared Monty, he was a forward observer, Medal of Honor, and probably one of the best forward observers in the in the business. Yeah, he was a good dude, solid dude. All right, so real quick, we'll get to Afghanistan. So you're in Afghanistan, you're a targeting officer. Yeah, so with 10th Mountain Division. With 10th Mountain. So you finally like punched your man card. Uh, well, I tried to get it at 82nd. Couldn't do it. <laughs> no. 
So you are going out, you're, you're working uh, with my old battalion, 132, and you're still doing targeting thing, you're identifying targets, you're sending boys out to kill capture these targets. Yes. Uh, and we talked about this a little before, but you would send guys out on patrols. Guys would be KIA on those. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we would have intel on a target, one of our... In Afghanistan, we were highly uh, individual targeting. We went in, took over from a coalition headquarters, and they had uh, 130 individuals on the target list. When we left a year later, we had over 1,100. We went real heavy on targeting individuals. That was our. That was the thing. That was how we were gonna, how we were gonna handle the Taliban. And we would take them, and they they have networks of themselves. So you have the finance guy, the IED maker, the guy that places it, the guy that does the media, the communications guy. They have all those people in these networks, and we would determine who was the most important. And that was the guy we would, we would target all of them, but that was the, the guy that had the higher higher value. And we even went so far as for our high value targets to individually target networks themselves. So we would have uh, like the Kandahar IED network, and that's where we would we would target them individually. So yeah, we would send units out after these guys individually, and you know sometimes you would have KIAs. That, so how do you how do you how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? You know, not that it's, I mean, you didn't get them killed, right? But like, right. you sent them out to a place. Yeah, I mean, we provided all the data to go. We would provide as much data as we could to who else was in the area, what type of other weapons were in the area, whatever. Something that became really big there that we didn't anticipate until it happened was a recoilless rifle. Um, somehow the Taliban got a couple of recoilless rifles, and they were punching straight through our armor. And they were, I mean, they were just, it was decimating. That became a high value by itself. You know, if we knew that there was a recoilless rifle somewhere, we were doing everything possible to get them. Yeah, so you would send you'd send them out there and you'd give them as much data as you could and hope hope to God they all came back. I mean, if they didn't, I won't say it's acceptable, but I mean, the mission has to be accomplished. Well, I mean, that's and, a reality that a lot of people don't like. There is there is an acceptable rate of loss. Combat, or right? Just, I mean, just it's, not, it's not spoken, but yeah, you, but you I mean, it's you a understand. Fact. That's you fight wars and you can lose X number of guys and be okay with it because you're gonna have to lose guys if you're fighting a war. You tell yourself, you know, you give yourself your own percentage or your own number, whatever. I mean, it's I'm, I'm sure you know, back in World War II, there was okay, if we don't lose more than 10% going into this battle, then we're good, right? Today, it's much lower. now, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if the percentage is lower, but. The number of casualties, you know, when you had 30,000 troops going into a battle, if you lost 10%, you know, it's, that's a lot. But now when we have 30 troops going into battle, you know, and you lose 10%, that's phenomenal. Right. You know, and especially with, you know, instant media, uh, the 24-hour news cycle. A guy gets killed in Afghanistan right now, in two, three hours, we're going to know about it. And the American people know about it, and they don't like it. So it's, so it's a lot different. So, and, then, and that's one of the reasons I feel like Afghanistan has, has dragged on so long is because there, there was, never was the full commitment to, like, to win that, like just outright win it in the first few years, like would have cost a pretty significant rate of casualties, right? And I just don't think that people at home could stomach that. They don't like the idea of hearing 10, 15,000. Oh, yeah, there's no way. What it would take in Afghanistan is to do hands across the desert. You walk through and you clear every bit of it. You need, but you would need the, the Afghan army, the Afghan national police who aren't crooked. Well, it's good luck finding them. Sure. Some of the army guys are decent. Yeah. 
but I mean, they, they have decent people. Yeah. But, and then we have this, this phenomenon going on where they're shooting us in the back in from inside our, our infobs and right. Oh, makes lost, it hard to trust. Yeah. I lost a good friend that way. And you know, they're walking to chow with their partner who's an Afghan. And all of a sudden that person decides that, you know, you're all dead and grabs his weapon and shoots everybody. You know, it's just the people that still do that still have those partners or better people than I am. Cause I don't sure. know if I could, I don't know if I could trust them after any of them. Absolutely. Um, and that's another thing when we get, we get intel on different players in the national police or an army, you know, and from whatever, somebody would come in and say, this guy's crooked, you know, and then you got to try and find out, are they actually crooked or is he just mad because he didn't get promoted? And that colludes the, the system and, and really jams it up. And, I think I agree with your point of the only way to really truly wrap that up is to just send everybody shoulder to shoulder, every nook and cranny. Short of that, I don't think it's, I don't think it's winnable necessarily. How much longer do you think we're still going to be there? Until Pakistan decides to join. Which probably never. Right. I mean, they're, they're the safe haven. And we're so sensitive now about going into Pakistan. We tried to build a gate in one of the, the border crossing areas. And to go down there, blow some rock out, actually build a cement pillars and a gate, was, it was within, I don't know, 1,500 meters or so of the border. And it was like you needed national clearance to even get that close. Right. You know, instead of, and if we, if we got shot at from the pack border, forget it. If we yeah, returned fire, it was, it was an international incident. Right. And yeah, until Pakistan decides to join in and destroy the Taliban, I don't think it's going to happen. All right. So final thing. So when you were in Iraq, I think it was your first tour and you called home, it was your son's third birthday? Yes. Yeah, so you were calling, standing on a bunker with a sat phone in 03. Yeah. He is now what? 15, 16. 16. Yeah. 16. Driving, yeah. So he's two years away from being 18, eligible for a draft. The war that you were fighting when he was three years old is still ongoing. Yeah. What do you say it's if he actually, comes to it's, you? It's, I think it's, it's being re- yeah, ramp, It's ramp ramping up. up. Yeah, yeah, because of that's uh, politics. But what if he comes to you and says, Dad, I think I want to join the Army. I want to go to Iraq or Afghanistan. I want to get in combat like you did. No, nah, he's going to join the Coast Guard or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, not that the Coast Guard aren't ever in danger, and they, you know, they protect our borders, and they're very important. But you know, go to college, be an officer. So you wouldn't stop him, but you wouldn't encourage it, or would you stop him? No, I encourage it. I'd, I'd, I'd encourage it now, and he's looking at the Coast Guard, but I encourage him to serve. But definitely not the Army. No, I don't. I don't want him to be a, in the Army or Marines. That's that's me. If he decides that's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to do. Sure. You know, I don't, I mean, everybody has their calling. If that's it, then that's it. You know, I'd love him to go be a, you know, a, a rescue pilot, you know, in a helicopter somewhere, you know, down in the Keys or, you know, <laughs> Gulf of Mexico or something, you know, somewhere nice and where it doesn't get too bad except for the hurricanes or something, you know, and he can go out and do a rescue swim or something. Like yeah, you know, or, you know, you know, fly. If he's a pilot, then when he gets out, he can go, in my mind, in perfect world, he gets out and he's, you know, flying executives around, you know, just making tons of money, and that's all he's doing, you know. But that's my world, you know. His own. Yeah, so he'll he'll do whatever he has to. But yeah, I mean, I I definitely encourage him to serve. You know, if you're able-bodied, you should. We've spoken about this a few times now, and you've got a theory on not a theory necessarily, but shit, I don't know what whatever you want to call it on the relatively high rates of suicide amongst. That's some service members. You want to share that with us? Yeah, and that could be completely off base, but we were talking earlier about Kennedy, uh, Colonel Mintz. 
great, awesome leader. And I had been talking about this for years, and I think I was in the 101st at the time when I first came up with this. And then Colonel Mintz this year for Memorial Day posted something on Facebook. It's very similar. So in, war, in Vietnam, let's go with that because it's more recent. In Vietnam, you would join the military. You would be assigned to a unit. You would go over to Vietnam, meet your unit who was already deployed there, do your year, and redeploy home individually. The unit would stay as unit. So say 132 Infantry was in Vietnam, and you went over, you'd go over, do your year, you'd come home, 132 would stay there. And that's just how it was. And you made friends that last a lifetime, but you spent a year with them in, in hell. And now, the way everything's done is as a unit, so 132 deploys to Afghanistan as 132, the leadership, soldiers, everybody. They spend a year there, or longer sometimes. Then they redeploy back to the States as 132, and everybody, everybody goes and comes together. So it becomes a large family because you train with them. For a couple of years, usually, before you go for that year. Right. So like I was at Fort Campbell for six years. I was in the same unit for six years. So for six years, I did deployments, come home, deployments, come home, deployments, come home. And then the Army goes, all right, well, now you're going to 10th Mountain Division. So you're leaving Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and you're going to Fort Drum, New York. So everybody that was, that I, even if I, if they had come in four years into that, I still knew them for four years. And I deployed and came home and trained with them. If they were there for the full six years, that's six years of building family ties. You know more about them than their own siblings, their own parents. Then the Army says, all right, now you're going two different ways. And they take that guy and they send him to uh, Hawaii or something. So it's just, you just completely ripped apart that. I mean, we have the internet. We can send emails or call. But but you know, you'll never all be in the same room again. Right. So it's, I think that the dynamics that, that, that occurs with that, and you have soldiers that, I mean, young soldiers that come to a unit as a private, E1, E nothing, work their way up to, say, E4, E5, sometimes even E6. They become, went from a soldier to a leader with the same guys. They're out there fighting next to each other, spilling the same blood together for years on end. And now they're just separated. Or they get out. And there's nobody there like those guys were. And everybody says, oh, call me. I'll be there for you. But really, call somebody at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and see if they're really there. Sure. You know? And then a lot of them are, and they will take the time. And I've seen that, you know, you can, you can follow along on pages in Facebook or what have you, and you can watch the call go out like, hey, this vet's in trouble. Somebody get there. And people, and they do. And that's really helped a lot, I think. But... You get these guys that are stuck somewhere by themselves and they don't know how to handle it because they don't have that family that they had for the last four years. So they, they end it because they can't take it anymore. And I think it's, I think it's a big dynamic. I don't know what the answer is to fix it. I wish I did. I wish I could come up with an answer. You know, I always say, don't come to me with a problem if you don't have a solution. Right. Yeah, I don't have a solution. Because really, you, ca you can't necessarily blame the Army for this one, right? Because the reason they move people around is they want seasoned leaders in new units with junior soldiers. It makes sense why they do it, but it's just not the most healthy thing. And the Army needs to, to, you need to move. I don't know. From a mental health perspective, it's just not the greatest thing. But yeah, it's, but it's I a, mean, it's a necessary. I mean, what if you did after every deployment, you know, or after two years, you know, reduce the, 
I know they say they try and reduce the. You have dwell time now, so you have to be on station for so long after you get back because you're that's your dwell time, you know, at the unit or in in the states. But when you're in the same unit, by the time your dwell time's up, you know that unit's getting ready to deploy again, so you deploy with that unit. You don't have a chance to move on. Now you can waive all that. You know, I, you can go from deploying with the hundred first, land in February, move to Fort Drum in April and in June you're deploying again. Sure. You can wave all that and, and go. And there's lots of guys that do it. But I don't know, it's I don't I don't know what, what the answer is on what the time is or how long do you keep somebody there or what mental health help, you know, do they need to figure it out. There was a guy that wrote a book called On War. I can't think of his name for the life of me right now. But he came and talked to us when I was in the Rock Suns 101st. We packed in the theater and he talked. It's um, so On Killing and On War are the two books here. And they're phenomenal. They help with your mental health a lot because you understand kind of why we do things or have to do things. I think it actually, I don't I don't know what the mental health answer is. I, I don't, I'm not a mental health professional. <laughs> I don't know what makes people tick. Sure, know. we see the problem, but there's no obvious solution to yeah, it. I can so. look at patterns and determine why you show up and work and a certain time and which way you go to work every day but i don't know what the map of people's brains is i don't know my own <laughs> no <judge. laughs> yeah you know, uh, yeah i don't know why i think the way i do sometimes but if, if we could figure that out i think maybe it's just 10 percent you know so you save 10 percent of the suicides you know, that's that's two every day sure sure it's not insignificant right well all right man thanks for joining us today yeah, no appreciate it having yeah. some deep conversation there <laughs> for yeah. a dumbass country boy or yeah relatively learned <laughs> yeah. yeah didn't do good in school <laughs> <laughs> well teaching lady didn't tell me shit nope no, they didn't